tonight, I want to go a little further into that topic of baptism, and I want to turn your attention to Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. The New King James Version reads like this, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, and there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I want to teach for a little while on this Wednesday evening, and I want to sharpen up our understanding of what water baptism is and what it does so that we can gain confidence in teaching others, and I also want to remind somebody of who you are in God. When you're baptized in the name of Jesus, there's some spiritual things that happen in your life that it changes your identity. You leave some things behind, and you start to pick up some new things. It changes who you are, and I just want to remind somebody, maybe you've already been baptized in the name of Jesus, but I want in the Holy Ghost to remind you tonight of who you are in God. You don't have to be intimidated or bullied by the adversary because you've had the saving name of Jesus Christ applied to your life. There is no greater name under heaven. There's no other name that you can be saved by than the name of Jesus Christ. And so for a little while tonight, I want to talk to you and teach about the effects of baptism, the effects of baptism. You may be seated. We have a baptism scheduled for this Sunday. It's exciting. If you've never, I'll say this right now and I'll probably say it again later. If you've never been baptized in the name of Jesus or you're not sure how you were baptized, you need to be sure that you were baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins. It's the way that the Bible teaches us to be baptized. Everyone in the New Testament was baptized in the name of Jesus. And you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. We believe that spontaneous water baptism is biblical. What do I mean when I say spontaneous? I mean that when you understand that you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus and you've repented of your sins, you need to be baptized. You don't need to put it off, but you need to be baptized right then and there. You see it multiple times in the book of Acts where somebody gains a revelation of the saving power of the name of Jesus called over them in water baptism and they immediately desire to be baptized. And every time and every occasion, they do it just that quickly. And we can do it for you. We can baptize. If you're sitting under the sound of my voice right now and you've never been baptized in the name of Jesus, we can absolutely do it. We could do it tonight. We can do it as soon as you're comfortable doing it. We believe it's that important. Amen? I want to teach kind of in a survey tonight. Um, we're going to be in the Bible a lot, if that's okay. If that's okay about the effects of baptism. But water baptism is an association with Jesus Christ. We've already said that when we take on Jesus' name in baptism, we're identifying ourselves with him, with his death, burial, and resurrection, and with his saving power. It's an association with Jesus Christ. And tonight, I, wanna, I want to base out of Galatians chapter 3, the passage we read together, and I want to call your attention to six different dimensions of that identity. There's three things that happen to you, and there's three things that change how you live. The first one that I want to call your attention to is in the very first verse that we read together, Galatians chapter 3, verse 20, uh, verse, it's actually the second verse, verse 27. Verse 27. It says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. On Christ is the first dimension that I want to call your attention to. When you are baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins, the Apostle Paul writes to us and tells us that we put on Christ. And the picture that I want you to have is of you taking a garment and putting it on. So I'm going to go over here and get my jacket just so that you can uh, really see, even though I know you understand what I'm talking about. Whenever you think about baptism, you think about being baptized in the name of Jesus, the Apostle Paul likens it to putting on something, putting on a garment. And uh, the same way that you would put on a garment in a physical sense, you can think in a, in a certain sense, in a dimension, 
uh, that that's what happens when we are baptized in the name of Jesus. When we're baptized, we're taking off an old garment of sin. Before we come to God, we're carrying around our own righteousness. We think that we're right. I think that my way is the best way. That's how we live, for, that's how we live before we come to God. Whether we actually verbalize that or not may be a different story, but that's how we live. And when we're baptized, we're taking that off. And we're saying, my way is not sufficient. My righteousness isn't righteousness at all. And I need something new. The prophet Isaiah said it like this in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. The prophet said, but we are all like an unclean thing. All of us. We're all like an unclean thing. And all of our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf. And all of our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. We're all in that condition when we start. It's a human condition. It isn't just about you. You don't have to feel like you're singled out about it. It's everybody. Everybody comes to God with basically the same condition. They've been doing it their way, and their way isn't working. And the prophet says that our way that we think of sometimes as our own righteousness isn't righteousness at all. It's unrighteousness. It's filthy rags. It's, it's dirty. It's soiled. It's not what you want to be wearing around. It's certainly not what you can wear when you're trying to approach a holy God. When you're facing judgment before a holy God, you don't want to be wearing garments like that anymore. And in baptism, water baptism, we take off that garment and we put on Christ. Why is that important? Because Christ is our righteousness. What I've been carrying around and how I've been doing it my way for so long, I'm going to shed that and take it and, and let it go, and I'm going to put something new on. I'm going to put him on. Now, what does that mean? That means that everything that, did you know that Jesus is perfect? His track record's perfect. We're really talking about how our track record is going to keep us out of heaven. My track record by itself doesn't hold much water. It's not good for much. It's unrighteous. It's filthy rags. I need to take off that garment, and I need to take the garment of his righteousness, and I need to put it on. Because it's only whenever, hear me, this is so important. It's only whenever I stand before God and I have on Christ that God looks at me and says, he's okay. You can let him in. That's the only way we're saved. That's the only way we make it. It isn't that we get it isn't that we're saved and then suddenly we start we get good enough over time and then eventually I'm able to kind of just pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm able to just make it on my own. It's we never get to that place. We can live for God and do our dead level best for the majority of our entire life. And at the end of the day, when we stand before that throne of judgment, we still need to have put on Christ. Christ is still the only thing that's going to help us make it. It's not anything I'm going to do on my own or anything you're going to do on your own that's going to get you to the other side. It's only Christ. We must put on Christ. Colossians chapter 3, it shouldn't surprise us. It's the same writer. It's the Apostle Paul. But turn in Colossians chapter 3 with me. I want you to at least bookmark this one. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 8 uses the same language. And I just want to call your attention to it because I don't want you to think that what Paul said in Galatians chapter 3 is just isolated. This is a theme that shows up repeatedly. Colossians chapter 3 verse 8 says this, but now you yourselves are put off, are to put off all of these. So we're talking about taking off all of these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither 
Greek nor Jew. Do you recognize some of this language from the passage we read in Galatians? Circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. Let's go on and read a little bit more. Verse 12, therefore, I love that therefore because that means everything that he just wrote about. We're fixing to talk about some of the ramifications of it. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on, these are some of the things we ought to put on, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on, there's that language again, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which, you, to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. Keep a pin in, in that scripture because we'll come back to that later. But for the people that Paul was writing to in that day, in the first century back then, a lot of Greek-speaking people, fact is a lot of the culture back then, they didn't just speak the language, but they, they were Greek uh, and, and, and Roman and that was a lot of their cultural tendencies. And one of the things that they did is when you were a child, there was a, there was a particular kind of garment that a child would wear. And uh, it was suited for a child. And when you saw someone wearing it, you recognized them as a child. They were somebody that were underage. Uh, they hadn't reached adult maturity yet. And because of that, when the people that Paul originally wrote to, when they read these words that we've been reading, they would have thought of this childhood and adulthood type of garment uh, that really distinguished between the age categories. And in their world, when a child came of age, that child changed clothes. Their wardrobe changed. The way they presented themselves change. No longer did they wear that clothing of a child, uh, but there was a distinct type of garment for adults. And for them, it was, if you've ever seen a toga, I should have got a picture of it, but it was a toga back then most of the time. It was, it was a particular kind of garment that adults would wear. And it's reflected in the same type of thing as reflected in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul writes and says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, and I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And one of the effects of baptism is that it launches you towards spiritual maturity. It doesn't mean that you've arrived, but when you take on the name of Jesus in water baptism, it positions you to grow. How many know what I'm talking about? How many know that whenever you repented and you were baptized in the name of Jesus, it almost puts you on uh, a little bit of an accelerator for your spiritual growth? And there were some things that started happening in your life and in your walk with God that didn't happen before. Does anybody know what I'm talking about right now? Will anybody testify and say, I remember when I repented of my sins and I got baptized in the name of Jesus, and when I did that, Maybe you were even filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, which we believe is essential as well. There were some things in your spiritual life that started to grow. That's what happens. That's one of the effects of being baptized. The second one that I want to call your attention to is that you are in Christ. In Christ. Originally, in the condition that we come to God, we are in Adam. Adam is the first man. Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, and because of Adam's sin, because of Eve's sin, everybody has sinned. We're born with a sinful nature. We're born at, in a condition of being at opposition with God. We're not in alignment with God, and we have to do something to get in alignment with Him. So originally, when we come to God, you are in, in Adam, but when you... Repent of your sins, and the scriptures say when you're baptized in the name of Jesus, now you are in Christ, in Christ. You can look at Galatians chapter 3, the passage we read, and you can see in several places in, that, in just that passage alone, and if, it, there are many instances where it uses that phrase, 
in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And, and if you were to go through the entire New Testament, I should have Googled it. You can probably Google it right now and see how many times that phrase, in Christ, is used in the New Testament. It's staggering. It's all over the place. This is one of the ways that Paul describes all the time what happens when we're baptized. Let me read a few of them for you just for effect. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. The Apostle Paul was uh, in Athens and he said in Acts chapter 17, he says, in him, in Christ, we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Why is it so important that we understand that when we're baptized, one of the effects is that we are now, we haven't just put on Christ, but we're in Christ? It's important because of what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us. For he, who made, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God who can finish it in him. It's those last two words that everything hangs on. We have to be in Christ. How do I get in Christ? I get in Christ by being baptized in his name. And only then can the righteousness, can his righteousness be applied to my life. And all of a sudden, the filthy rags, the condition that I come into God can be covered by his righteousness, and I can be saved. Thirdly, I want to point your attention towards the fact that when you are baptized, one of the effects is that not only are you, do you put on Christ, not only does the apostle say that we're in Christ, but he says we are Christ's. Look at verse 29. He says, if you are Christ's. What does it mean? What, why are we pausing and why are we kind of just stopping on individual words here? Because to say that you are Christ's means that you belong to him. You're possessed by him. You, he owns you. It means what the Apostle Paul wrote in other places. He says, I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. There's something, I, I, I know it seems backwards. This is, why, this, is, <laughs> this is why we can't save ourselves. There's something liberating about not being in charge of your own life anymore. There's something freeing about knowing that it doesn't all rise and fall on me anymore. It isn't about how good I am. It isn't about my performance anymore. It's about my faith. It's about, can I follow Jesus? Have I been baptized into his name? Have I put him on? Have I gotten in him? Do I belong to him? And what the effect is, is that when you belong to him, it means you're not owned by sin anymore. Somebody needs to hear me right now because you're dealing with stuff that, that sin has you bound up and there's strongholds and there's bondages in your life and it does not have to be that way. Because when you are baptized, you are his. You belong to him. You're not be... I wish I could think of exactly how Paul says it in Romans right now. He says you're not... Obligate, I'm not saying it, I'm not quoting it exactly. He says you're not obligated to sin to do what it says anymore. You're not obligated to sin. The things that used to drive you around and steer your life and dictate your every move and, and dominate your thoughts, you aren't obligated to those things anymore. It doesn't mean you won't be tempted. But temptation is not the same thing as the act. And you are not obligated to have your life driven around by sin anymore because sin doesn't own you anymore. You don't belong to this world. You don't belong to sin. You don't belong to the adversary anymore. Christ has purchased you with his own blood. And when you are baptized in the name of Jesus, one of the effects is not only do you put on him like a garment, not only are you in him 
that you've been baptized into his family, but you are his. You belong to him. And nobody, this is what the Bible says, nobody is able to pluck you out of his hand. What's Paul say at the end of Romans chapter 8? Neither height nor depth nor any other thing. Sword, persecution, famine, anything in this world. Nothing is able to separate you from the love of Christ. Because you belong to him. That's one of the effects of baptism. I want to advance on quickly to this next set of three. The first three dimensions that I've offered to you tonight as effects of baptism come directly from Galatians chapter 3 verses 26 through 29. That you put on Christ, that you are in Christ, and that you are Christ. And those three things really get down to the level of identity of who you are as a person. They, it fundamentally starts to change who you are and how you ought to think of yourself. But I want to go a layer deeper tonight and stay in the same passage and offer three more dimensions that not only talk about what you are, but how you live. How you live. And the first that I want to call your attention to is that it says that when you are baptized, you are sons of God. Sons of God. Verse 26, Galatians chapter 3. It says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We don't talk enough about sonship sometimes. But being a son of God, a daughter, a child of God, I don't want to be contrary, but not everybody is a child of God. I know that might fly in the face of some personal theology. I understand that all of us are created in the image of God, even the most wretched sinner created in the image of God. I understand that God created everything. And so, in that sense, he did create everything and everyone. But to say that somebody is a child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God, I would I would argue that that is a special designation reserved for those who are completely submitted to him. And here's why. It says that we are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It seems that to be a son of God has some qualifiers attached. You have to have faith. You have to believe. You have to act upon that faith. You need to repent of your sins. You have to start, you have to start going the same direction as God repenting of the things that you used to do and saying, I'm going to do it his way and not mine. And the Apostle Paul's talking about baptism here and saying that when we take on the name of Jesus, when we take on the family name in baptism, that we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. This is one of the most powerful aspects of your spiritual identity. And if you're looking for a good Bible study to do on your own, I would suggest to you, Go through the scriptures and learn what it is to be a son or a daughter of God. Let me give you some verses that you can start at. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, As many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. See, there's some... There's a lot of overlap here when we start talking about this topic of, of, of being a child or a son or a daughter of God. Most of the time, you end up in a conversation about the name. Romans chapter 8, verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 21. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 says, Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Sonship is an identity status. And there's two things, and I said a moment ago, this, these are things that change how you live. And here's what I mean by that. When you are able to get a revelation of 
how you are a child of God. You are a son of God. It's going to give it's going to open up things in two areas. The first is access and the second is authority. Let me tell you what I mean. Talking about being a son of God. Talking about baptism still. Here's what I mean. Sons, daughters, children have access. Access. You can step into the presence of your heavenly father and get immediate attention as a child of his. We know that's true in the natural sense, don't we? Parents in the room, we know that's true. One of our children, maybe one of your grandchildren, walks in the room. If it's obvious that they need something, if it's obvious that something's going on, something's not right, they have immediate access, don't they? It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter who else is around. It doesn't matter what's going on. Immediately, there's access granted. They don't have to know a special password. They don't have to go through a ritual. Am I preaching truth right now? They don't have to go through a particular ritual. There's no ceremony to it. It's access. That ought to change. I said this changes how you live. Here's what, here's what I'm driving at. That ought to change your prayer life. And it shouldn't just make you more bold to ask for things, even though you do need to be bold in asking for things because we have not because we ask not. But it ought to just change your communication with the Father. Because you're... You no longer have to approach the father and grovel. Children don't grovel before their parents. And we don't and you don't have to do that with your heavenly father. You have access. I'm just trying to encourage somebody right now. You aren't satisfied with where your prayer life is. And you just need a revelation of the kind of access that you actually have. You don't have to, you think, you think you're hung up on, let me talk to the person right now that you're hung up on, you have to have all the right words. You have to have the right prayer vocabulary. You have to have the right tone. You have to be praying at such and such a volume. I have to, I can't pray anywhere I'm at because when I pray, I have, I feel like I I have to scream. So I, it'd be a little awkward for me to pray in the, in the parking lot of Walmart because someone's going to think I'm getting mugged or I'm losing my mind. You don't have to, listen, I'm just going to help you right now. I know I'm really, really practical. I'm just talking about the kind of access that you have with the Father. You don't have to reach a certain volume level and you don't have to have a certain vocabulary and you don't have to use a certain tone. There's no ritual to it. There's no ceremony to it. Sure, there's good patterns. There's, there's, good, there's, there's good ways to pray. You can learn how to pray. Otherwise, the disciples wouldn't have asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. So there's ways, there's things you can learn to be effective in your prayer. But wherever you are in your prayer life, don't, don't get down on yourself and think, well, I... I I I don't know where to turn, and I don't know what to do. Just pray. He just wants to hear from you. He just wants to hear from you. And it doesn't have to be at a certain decibel level. And it doesn't have to be in a certain location. And you don't have to use flowery King James English. You just don't. He doesn't expect that. You have access. That's what happens when you're baptized. You're a member of the family. He calls you a son, and he wants to hear from you. Just in the same way, this is so easy for us to understand, because this is the same way in the natural. If one of your children or grandchildren calls you on the phone, you know what, I've, my kids, a couple of them, they have these little tablets and different things that they use for school, and I set them up, and they had parental controls, okay? Okay which, by the way, 
if you don't have parental controls set up on your kid's stuff, what are you thinking? Anyways, <laughs> we can talk about that another time. I'm setting up the parental controls on my girl's stuff, and apparently, and I set them all up exactly the same, Sister Gina, exactly the same, because if you don't give your kids exactly the same thing. So I set them all up exactly the same. I sat down. It was a pain. I just had to buckle down and do it. So I sat down and just did it. Well, it became obvious a couple days later, Sister Brittany, that when I was setting up my dear sweet Phoebe's, that I had missed a setting somehow. What I had done is I would restricted to where the only people they could text message through these little devices was me and my wife and their grandparents and one another. That's the only people that they could, they couldn't add any contacts. They couldn't do, it was just completely locked down. And they couldn't call, there was, they couldn't send pictures. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't uh, video call anybody. Well, apparently when I was setting up the video call feature, I missed that on Phoebe's. And so Phoebe, out of the whole tribe, is the one who can video call people. And so sometimes I'll be out in town, or I'll be driving, or I'll be here, or I'll be somewhere. Sometimes I'll be on the other end of the house. And Phoebe, all of a sudden, I'll get a FaceTime call. I'll be like, it'll start doing the little thing, and it's Phoebe. And Phoebe is, and none of her sisters can do it. And Phoebe can. And I've never bothered to change that because I kind of like it. It kind of balances the power out a little bit. She's the youngest sister, and it kind of is a check and a balance. Uh, she's got this power that the others don't have, and <laughs> they have to rely on her. When they need something, they want me to do something. They're like, Phoebe, call Dad. And so Phoebe will, and you never know what you're going to get when you click answer. You never know what Phoebe's going to be doing, um, what you're going to see. You never have any idea, or right, you have no idea, but believe me when I tell you, when Phoebe calls, dad answers, and I know you live the same way. I know parents and grandparents, you do the same thing, and I'm just telling you that what God is describing in the spiritual mirrors itself in the natural, and as much as I'm just... It just cracks me up every time she calls me and wants to talk about whatever is going on. Like, Dad, there's a bird in the driveway or whatever. Whatever's going on. I found a shiny thing on the ground. Um, I don't want to make light of it, but God wants to hear from you. And I went on that rabbit trail just to, just to drive the point home. God loves you. And, if, and if, if you had to use a phone to call him, he'd smile when he saw your number come up. He loves you. He wants to hear from you. And you have that kind of access. You have his number programmed into your device. <laughs> and he wants to hear from you. Here's the other thing that I wanted to draw your attention to. And it's not just access, but it's authority. Authority. You can operate when you're a son, when you're a child of God you can operate under the covering of your Heavenly Father's authority and power. It reminds me, when I think of that, when I start thinking about the authority that you can operate in as a child of God, it's not your authority, but it's His authority, and you get to exercise it. It makes me think of that story of David when he was marching down to that valley and Goliath was standing out there cursing Israel and cursing the God of Israel. And Goliath's standing out there in all of his armor and his big staff and helmet and shield and all this stuff. And David says, you come to me with a sword and a shield, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. I don't think David was being arrogant. I think David had a good understanding of whose authority he was there on. He says, I'm here on the, on, in the authority of my heavenly father. I'm not here because I'm the toughest guy in the army. I'm not here because I'm the most skilled warrior. I'm here and I'm going to be victorious over you. And I'm going to take control of this situation simply because I understand authority and I'm a son of God 
and I'm under his authority. And I'm getting ready to release that authority on you, Goliath. It's powerful. It ought to change. I said the first time it ought to change how you pray. This ought to change how you deal with opposition. And how you deal with spiritual resistance. And how you deal with some of the strongholds and things that set up in your life that try to be destructive to you. And try to discourage you. And try to intimidate you. You ought to understand whose authority you're able to operate in as a son of God. That's one of the effects of baptism. What did David say? I come to you in the name of the Lord. David hadn't been baptized. David didn't know the same. This was thousands of years before Jesus came on the scene. How much more should we who have been baptized in the saving name of Jesus Christ be able to exercise the authority of our Heavenly Father? You don't have to allow the adversary to bully you. The scriptures say resist the devil and he will flee. And when you walk in your spiritual identity as a son of God, you exercise that supernatural power that belongs to the Father and you're able to overcome any adversary. The second, second thing I want to call your attention to that changes how we ought to live is completely different than the one we just talked about. But it's, I would call it social unity. Social unity. It's in verse 28 of Galatians chapter 3. Here's what it says. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And here's the truth that none of us like to acknowledge. Every single one of us has this human tendency, a sinful tendency, to draw lines for insiders and outsiders. We draw boundaries. We've got a tendency to draw boundaries around our family, to draw lines around my tribe, people with my skin color, people from my part of the world, people who speak the language that I speak, people who are the same gender as I am, people who are in the same income bracket as I am, we draw lines. Am I correct? We see it all over the world. It's the byproduct of, an, of a sinful human condition, and we battle it even in the church. Otherwise, Paul would never have to write the words that I just read to you. It's something that's deeply embedded in us, and we have to do battle against it. And when Paul says, you've been baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ, you are Christ's, and then he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. That has enormous implications for how we treat one another. Not just people in the church, but people outside of the church. The church was not going to be a fragmented church. The church was going to be a unified church. And the only way the church was ever going to be unified is if this tendency of drawing lines in the sand and partitioning off categories of people was ever addressed and overcome the way that Paul is writing in Galatians chapter 3. This was Jesus' prayer for us. John chapter 17, verse 11, here's what Jesus says. He says, now I am no, this is Jesus praying to the Father. I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, to keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. It was the vision of Jesus for the church to be as unified and one as he and the Father, which is to say, one. I and my Father are one, is what Jesus said. And it was never Jesus' plan to have a church that was fragmented and divided on the basis of race or language or skin color or nationality or language or financial status or anything like that. But we were all going to be one in Christ Jesus. And that's one of the effects of baptism. Hear me right now. When we're baptized in the name of Jesus, we all come in under the same banner. 
we apply it sometimes to death, and we say there's nothing we can take with us, and you've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. And that's kind of the response that we get because it's, we don't like thinking about it, but we know it's true. Well, listen, no one comes into the kingdom with a U-Haul either. We all come in the same gate. None of us, your money don't matter, your race don't matter, your family tree don't matter, the language you speak doesn't matter, even whether you're male or female doesn't matter. Because we're all born into the kingdom of God the same way. You have to repent of your sins, be baptized in the name of Jesus, and be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, speaking in other tongues. It is the only way. And Jesus said, anybody who tries to come in another way is the same as a thief and a robber. There's only one way. And furthermore, once you get through the door and you get into the family and you're a part of the kingdom, we don't start dividing up and drawing the lines all over again the way they do in the world. But we all come around the same table, in the same room. We don't sit in different sections, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 says, Now the, unrighteous, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Everybody, all who believe. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, says, By one spirit, one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we've all been made to drink into one spirit. Why do you think Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Those lines we used to draw are no longer valid when we're in the kingdom. Let me say it another way. We cannot, the church cannot look to the world for how we ought to treat one another. And how we ought to organize ourselves. And how we ought to behave when we interact with each other. We can't look to the world for those things because the world is broken and messed up and there's probably nothing that they're more broken and messed up about than this topic. Because the adversary wants to turn every group of people against every other group of people in this world. And one of the things he does the most is race. Or people, the haves and the have-nots, whatever. He draws lines up all over the place. And it's his singular goal to keep the world as divided as possible. And to keep everybody hating each other as much as possible. And all those things, whether it's racism or any other kind of ism that Satan uses to do what I'm talking about, it's satanic. And it has no place in the church. None. None whatsoever. The only line that matters now, the only, the only dividing line that we recognize now is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19. It says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. That's how we decide who we fellowship with. That's how we decide who is in the church and of the church. Keeping the commandments of God is what matters. The main upshot of all of it is that Pentecost is not a private party. It's not that every, any group should be excluded, and once they're in the church, no group or person is to be isolated or categorized. It's one of the effects of baptism. There's a story I read one time about these two brothers. These two brothers were doing the very, very best that they possibly could to get by. They'd struck out on their own and times were so tough, the circumstances were so difficult that they really did have to stick together in order to just try to stay afloat. They had to watch out for one another, they had to pull their resources, their efforts and these two brothers, to be honest, they just weren't doing a very good job of it. They were messing it up, they were making some bad decisions. And opportunities just weren't falling their way. They worked nonstop trying to cobble together the dream of having a respectable place to live and a respectable life. 
but even their combined efforts were not enough to make a dent in their aspirations that they had of just being able to exist and thrive with some kind of honor and nobility. And their condition that they were in at this particular time in their life uh, where the story happens, the condition that they were in was bleak and it wasn't very optimistic at all. In fact, uh, they were at this point living in a cave, literally living in a cave. Uh, I think you could probably say that they were homeless and, um, and except that they did have this cave to live in. So uh, they, they did have that going for them, but who wants to live in a cave? And both worked jobs and these two brothers were exhausted one evening from their efforts and they laid on their thin cots on top of the hard, damp cave floor and that evening, as they laid there, exhausted from their efforts and wondering what they were going to do next, there was a visitor who showed up at the entrance to their cave. And he had a piece of extraordinary and unbelievable information, news for them that would just stagger their imagination. The visitor who showed up at their cave that evening was an attorney. And he was there to confirm their identities and to tell them that they had a relative, a great uncle, that they didn't know existed. This great uncle, this long lost relative, had left them $8.4 billion. Imagine the jubilation that they had discovering that they were being re-inducted as members of a family that they never even knew they were a part of. That they never even knew they belonged to. And what's more, not only were they gaining the identity of status in the family, but they were receiving that enormous fortune that secured their future for the rest of their days. I tell you that story tonight because something like that happens when you're baptized. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, that if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There's a spiritual heritage that you get to lay hold on tonight. It's one of the effects of being baptized. And every single person that's baptized in the name of Jesus gets to claim ownership of the promise of Abraham by faith. Because it's no longer <laughs> what God promised to Abraham is no longer about just what happens in the physical. Used to. It mattered what ethnic group you were a part of and what family tree you could trace your line back through because you needed to be a part of that family tree, literal fam physical family tree that Abraham was a part of. And you needed to be a part of that lineage and that genealogy. But now, by faith, it's not about the physical anymore, but it's about the spiritual. Romans chapter 9, verse 8 says, Those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. It's no longer about being an Israelite, being a Hebrew. Those that are that used to claim according to the flesh, they're no longer, it's no longer qualifies them as children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. You're part of God's family by faith. That's why Romans chapter 4, verse 13 says, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. You see, if you were, if we were going to snap a timeline this evening, and we we're going to look at when Abraham was on the world scene and God was doing everything in Abraham's life, you would see that everything God did with Abraham and all the promises God made to Abraham, the promises that you get to be in the inheritor of, it all happened before God gave the law to Moses. So the promise that God wants to see unfold in your life and the fortune that you get to inherit by faith 
isn't because of the law. And it isn't because you obeyed the Old Testament Mosaic law. But it's because like Abraham, you said, I'm going to take a step of faith. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to find something and lay hold of something that I can't even see with my physical eyes. But God is preparing something spiritually for me in glory. God gave the inheritance to Abraham by promise. And you get to inherit that promise when you're baptized. Stand with me if you would all over this room. If you read on in the book of Galatians, time didn't permit tonight. But if you've, if you've got the desire to do it, I would encourage you to read a little further into Galatians, into chapter 4. Because Galatians chapter 4 identifies you as a child of promise as long as you've been born again into the family of God. I said it a little while ago this evening. I want to repeat it again because I believe I, I just have this central core conviction that it's so important. If you've never been baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins or if you're just not sure how you were baptized and you'd like to look further in Scripture, I want to encourage you you need to have a conversation with me or with another minister or maybe with the person you came with tonight and you need to look further into that because we believe that there's only one way to be saved. You need to have the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The passage I preached on Sunday morning, 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 21 says baptism doth now save us something powerful that happens when you're baptized in the name of Jesus. I've taught about it tonight. There's some things that fall off of your life, and there's some things that you can put on. And I just think God wants to put some things in us and on us tonight. Can we lift up our hands all over this room right now? I just feel prompted in the Holy Ghost to open up these altars right now and to just make an opportunity for somebody to have an encounter with God. I want to invite you to come up. I, I think it would be appropriate if we all stepped out of where we are and we all started to make our way up around one of these altars and around the front of this room because I just think that there's some things that you want to take off in your life and some things that God wants to put on in your life. There's some new things that God wants to do.